because we're going to bring language into the container of meditation. It would be helpful if we understand something of the power of language. The intimacy of listening and speaking. such that we can perhaps approach our practice of listening and speaking in meditation with a certain amount of uh, respect and perhaps skill even. That hopefully diligence Words name the world. And in naming the world, it can be brought within one's mind and remembered and even manipulated mentally. which accelerates learning and enables a level of complexity that no unlanguaged species could possibly attain to. A complexity of civilization, culture, and so on is obvious. But also a complexity of human relationships is built on this foundation, or shall I say this is part of the foundation of human relationships. The capacity to say, I care about you, or please go away, or I feel sad. To speak is a relational act. So to say, I feel sad, the very fact of that is working internally, where something has crystallized in this complex experience of mind states and body that is then identified in some way in this little package of sad and that I feel sad. And so already something has happened by naming it. Sometimes we fall, of course, into our own cliches. We fall into the construction of sad, which may not be at all helpful, but it happens. 
and that all of the ways that we understand sad perhaps come down and oppress us and hold us in, oh, I'm sad, I'm one who is sad, without even questioning that this might just be a set of sensations and, you know, a shifting of a certain kind of thought that has association with aversion, this kind of thing. Very powerful, though, internally. But when it comes into the use of language, so I speak to you, I feel sad. Now, something of another order is happening. Now, something of this cluster of sensations and mind states and so on, that was this subjective experience, unknown to you perhaps, and precedes having a name, precedes the word sadness. This has now come out and been offered to you, spoken to you, so that you touch something of this otherwise inaccessible subjective experience. Even if it's coarse, if the word, say, sad, is crude in relationship to all of the nuances of what I'm feeling, it is still a huge leap that this can be transmitted through your meaning and understanding of the word sad when the word touches the ear, the sound touches the ear and moves up to the brain and moves through the body. Oh, Greg is sad. And something is touched, something comes alive in the mind of the other, in your mind. Humans aren't only organisms in a physical environment. We are organisms in a relational environment as well. And we're part of a languaging web. It's very easy to, for example, look at a uh, beehive or a colony of ants and see how these social species work together in stunning ways, the patterns that emerge from how they work together has enabled them to conquer their niche in the ecosystem. 
thousands, millions of ants can work together and dominate their terrain. And we can look and we can say, wow, it's like they're one thing, the way they move and the way they communicate. And we can see the same with other social insects like bees. And in the abstract, we can say, okay, humans are social and we're in this web and we can kind of, in some gross way, get a sense of interconnectedness, where things come from, like chairs and so on, but also the way whole civilizations and architecture and metallurgy and physics and uh, social work and farming and you know and here we are covering the planet we've dominated the ecosystem but when it comes to maybe me this particular me we still perhaps feel like an individual unit we don't understand that we're vibrating as part of this web all the time. And we're built to vibrate as part of the web. As a species, this is what we evolved to become. It's how we survived. And this languaging, when I say I feel sad, has millions of years of history behind it. The brain vibrating with the ears, vibrating with the throat, vibrating with this brain, vibrating. Or to say where it begins, this body-mind, this sense of I am, feel something, I love you, feel something. And there's some kind of urge behind this, some urge that has no words. It has no words, it has no language, it's just experience. It's some emotion, some feeling of care or aversion, or maybe I just want you to uh, lock the door before you leave the house. But there's an urge that goes beyond, behind any of the particulars. And from that urge, there's this coalescing of the experience in the mind that is eventually spoken out as, please lock the door, or um, I hope you'd never do that again to me or whatever it is, that urge now has been given language and transmitted through the air, the vibrating of the air, the touching of the eardrums, and the signal to the brain, and the decoding of that, and the understanding of that. This is our little node in this web right now. Please close the door. It's a simple little thing. 
but it could also be who are you voting for? Or it could be I want to have that report on my desk by tomorrow. Or sold. And we begin to see that the web works up into all these practical things. And the web also is functioning at the emotional level. And it's all made possible with this delicate contact. This delicate contact. The fact that this is so profoundly conditioned, that the body-mind is so exquisitely sensitive, that a single word could send me off into a tailspin, a single sentence, let's make it easy to give an example, your mother just died, just words and up can come so much, or an ethnic slur, or, you know, a sexual innuendo, can send me all these different places. They're just the touching of sound to the ear, to the mind. Or if it's someone with whom you have an intimate relationship, and you say, Every time you do that, I feel disrespected. And by saying every time you reach back across 30 years, every time, just two words. It's not here and now, it's the whole thing. It carries a power. This is the power that I'm talking about. So we vibrate with each other, whether it's in the marketplace, in, in the civic world, or in the kitchen and the bedroom and so on. We vibrate together. And we vibrate. This mechanism of language is an extremely powerful um, piece of how we vibrate, how we cooperate, how we fight, how we build a life, a relational life, how we build en masse a culture, literature, music, art. So the, we come to the purpose of meditation. In meditation, we're not trying to build a culture in the, in the same sense. We're not trying to uh, settle and work out all of our emotional things. We're trying to know the nature of the body-mind because it will help us be free. And at the level of insight, there's this opportunity, should the mind get supple 
and alert enough to drop beneath the entire constructing process of the body-mind and in such a moment to cease being entranced by all the fabricating processes of self and the blindness of desire, the blindness of hunger. But if language is something that we are so sensitive to, that it stirs, and when we communicate, we're so sensitive to each other that we are stirring each other, well, you can see why you would leave that out of meditation. It's so highly leveraged. It's like fire. Stay away. Don't touch. Don't speak. Be in silence. And maybe, as your mind gets more settled, you'll receive the gift of insight. So what are we doing here? Is it wise? Could it be skillful? Let's look at the power of language and the relational contact that it enables from the standpoint of diminishing the unwholesome. That should be clear enough, but we can talk about that. But especially cultivating the wholesome, not interfering, but cultivating, developing, understanding, developing concentration. Let's look at it from that side. First, I'll say something about diminishing the unwholesome. So, if you'll accept, perhaps, that language is powerful, and I don't think anybody would try to deny that much of the time that power is spent doing harm, directed towards harm, unkind speech, uh, idle and uh, really uh, corrosive speech, and distraction, agitation. One just has to turn on the TV or see all the ways language is used so many places to, I don't have to go into that, right? We see that we're constantly stimulating each other through our culture and through our interpersonal relationships, our most intimate others. Sometimes we are unkind and screaming and yelling at emotional, you know, brethren. And often, relationships are dysfunctional. 
and overtly harmful, and language plays a huge role in that, right? So we can see that. Could we diminish the unwholesome by becoming aware of the Uh, the, the, the raggedness and the pain and the crudeness that it, uh, the harm it inflicts upon ourselves, even if we're not caring about others. It's like, whoa, I am tearing my heart apart when I scream at you. I am reinforcing my sense of isolation and distrust and fear when I threaten you, and so on. And then, of course, if as the mind becomes softer towards other beings and more understanding, we begin to see the harm that we're causing. And can our application of mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, can it serve to diminish the unwholesome. Preventing some of the harm, eradicating some of the patterns that bring harm, invoking a new relationship with language, with our speech patterns, our relational patterns. But perhaps, uh, in some ways, less obvious and certainly worthy of our attention as we enter into practice is the cultivation of the wholesome. So we talked about this just briefly this moment of interpersonal contact where language, as well as seeing each other and so on, language is a channel by which what's in my mind is being transmitted to your mind. Not the whole felt experience of everything, but some piece of it that was otherwise inaccessible to you. Right? So we understand that. Let's put that fact in the context of the Buddhist teaching, for example, on right view, samaditi, wise view, wise understanding. It's named as both the beginning of the path and the culmination of the path, the culmination of wisdom. Right? And the Buddha offered, there are two conditions necessary for the arising of right view. The voice of another and wise attention. The voice of another and wise attention. So someone is speaking and someone is listening. But let's, let's really, let's pursue that. So right now, as I'm speaking and you're listening. This is a practice of right view. We're in practice now. We're on the path, this instant. <clears throat> 
these words that I'm saying come from the Dhamma, they come from some understanding that I've cultivated and so on, and it's being transmitted from my mind to your mind through language. So the words touch the mind, I'm referring to you, but the medium is this air. So not only is there a power at work of language, but there's this incredible intimacy of our being physically coupled, my vocal cords that are vibrating right here in my flesh are vibrating your eardrums inside your head. These are vibrating together. Whoa, that's intimate, right? It's really intimate, it's incredible. And we just take it for granted. And so when those come together, that kind of that intimacy, and we recognize that, which comes together because of a refinement of attention, mindfulness, concentration, enable us to see, wow, this is happening. We don't overlook it. We don't live in the prepackaged life that we've mostly lived in around verbal communication and language. We're coming into like, you know, real experience. What is really happening here? And what we see is this wiggling, this vibrating of nodes in this web of being in this intimate way. And we see the power at work. We see that, that I can receive something of what is being offered, wise attention, the voice of another, and something can land about the Dhamma, about the nature of language, about my learning process, about the arising in this mind of some idea that was just a moment ago in Greg's mind, and I didn't know it. I didn't know it. He knew it. Now I know it. Yo, that's pretty good, right? We do it all the time, but if we understand the power being applied to right view, then all of a sudden this thing that was like meditation, keep the words away, we begin to say maybe there's also a possibility that we can wisely and with great care and um, allow that uh, capacity to be in service, not only of the meditative qualities of the mind, but of understanding, understanding something of the natural laws at work in the human experience, liberating knowledge that turns into liberating wisdom. Let's take it another step.
as I speak and I enter, let's say, into not so skillful speech. I'm not talking about really, you know, I'm not cussing and I'm not lying and all that, but I'm just basically wasting a lot of time telling stupid stories. You know, I've kind of, I got all this stuff I want to tell you because it feels good to say it. Something like that, you know. Well, it's a common thing. It does feel good to say all my stuff and I got you listening and I'm going to take advantage of it, you know. Wow. As a matter of fact, it's my turn. They don't even get to talk now. I'm going for it. It's kind of cute. It's kind of sweet. But it's also just proliferation. So let's say I'm just proliferating. Not evil, just your run-of-the-mill delusion. And you're listening, and I'm, without knowing it, invoking the power of language to transmit my proliferation to you. Let's proliferate together. And you say, yeah, that's a good story. Tell me more. And then we vibrate in proliferation. The voice of another and unwise attention. That's how the Buddha names these things. He's always very technical. So here, this same contact is happening the intimate wiggling, the whole thing. And what do you get? At the end of an hour, we're both kind of distracted, we're tired. There's no extra mindfulness. We're kind of friendly in that constructed way. You know, you've told me all about that boat you were on and I thought, wow, that's really cool. I've never gone on a boat, you know, whatever. But now, let's come back to the function of the contemplations in Insight Dialogue, the Dhamma. The Dhamma comes into meditation and it's using language to do it. So now we're offered a contemplation, let's say, on mindfulness itself. So we're observing mindfulness and naming what we're experiencing. What's it like to be mindful? Try to convey some sense of knowing the world or the sense of the brightness of mind as we begin to really get closer to what is this. And here we are now, we're talking about sati in experience. And now language, is it's not the sati. Language is still just language, it's still just the constructing, but it's aimed, and it's aimed at Dhamma. And this is now enabling the practice of relational Dhamma Nupassana, or a Vipassana practice of investigating the phenomenal experience of mindfulness itself. Because Language lets us point. We can't, you know, actually touch it, right? Can't touch concentration. 
but I can say what happens as my mind gets steady. And you're getting the transmission not only from the quality of my voice or my pauses, which you are getting, but you're also, when I say something like, there's a real stillness between words now, like everything vanishes. And you decode the meaning of that and you look for yourself. That's where it becomes experience, right? But it's experience that's been guided by the voice of another, not because I'm your teacher, I'm just your practice partner. But now you reflect back to me, yeah, and I notice also, and you offer the wiggling of the mind when it comes up out of concentration and then it drops back down again. And what's that like for you? And I'm listening, saying, yeah. And we're coming into the moment. And language, as well as just, as I said, the quality of voice, the gesture, all of it. But language is guiding the minds mutually towards samadhi, an investigation of the experience, the phenomenal experience of samadhi. So now, that same power that could have been talking about you know, our trip to some exotic part of the world is talking about, you know, pointing towards something that really contributes to wisdom. Contributes not just to the Dhamma, like con contemplating death or contemplating clinging or contemplating conceit and all these wonderful things, but contemplating the mind itself do you see what I'm saying? The language itself is not able to touch directly, to be the concentration. Not going to happen. But it can point. So the language, you might say, walks us up to the precipice of suchness. And then there's the leap to, to knowing. And this is powerful. It's powerful towards cultivating the wholesome, but it's all participating in this sensitivity that I started out with in this vibrating web. But now that vibrating web has been repurposed from uh, reinforcing the fibers of the blanket of ignorance to dissolving those very fibers and letting the light in. So how we practice matters. Because of this vibrating web and the fact that the body-mind is structured to be so sensitive to another person and to be uh, moved by the power of language, because that's 
fact. We have an unnameable, uncountable array of habits around how we speak and how we listen. Culturally driven down into us, emotionally reinforced to, you know, perform through language and to become and to feel like something and a million things. And so this brilliant mind of ours is going to fall into those habits because all the neural hormonal patterning of a lifetime is going that way. Without the pause, you can forget it. There will be no meditation, there will be conversation. And again, it might be good conversation, but without the sati, without the interruption of habit, habit will dominate. It's so powerful in the way of language and we will, and we will resonate in the habit. We will reinforce it with each other. So that's why I invite and I hope invoke a kind of respect for what we're trying to do. To really bring ourselves with real diligence and energy when we want to practice as a speaker, speak the truth, we're invited into that relationship with language. We're invited to what's beneath and behind the language. We're invited to mindfulness as this gross fleshy mechanism speaks. As listeners, we're invited to something beyond the uh, hearing through the filters of our presuppositions and dropping down to meet in a place where that contact begins and ends without language in experience. And for that to be inclined in support of the wholesome. We can do it. Setting the intention, this talk is about setting that intention. Aiming the mind towards the possible beyond the mundane, the habitual.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.